Guys 5 Movies. This is your co-host Chris Gasberry. And Frank Pelican. And this week we are going to be looking at Frank's top five period pieces of the 1970s. <clears throat> very specific. It is very specific, yes. <clears throat> it's part of the thing, Frank. Mm. Is we have to be specific because if you aren't, then we don't have any more episodes. True. <laughs> <clears throat> so... I wanted to start off by asking just briefly, one, why the 1970s, two, what's the appeal to you of period pieces? The 70s is like probably my favorite decade of film, um, from the late 60s to like 80, 81, that era. Um, <clears throat> some of my favorite directors, uh, were, in my opinion, in their prime in the 1970s. Um, I think there was a lot more chances being taken. Um, I think that, I mean, obviously there's a lot of, like, experimentation and, I don't know, like, more like abstract filmmaking in the 60s, but I think that um, that mindset started being applied to, like, more traditional, like, genre films. Um, some of my favorite movies of all time are from the 70s. Uh, and then the period pieces, um, sort of hot and cold on period pieces overall. Uh, sometimes I find them really, like, fascinating. Uh, I, I like things in a historical context, especially when, you know, it's, like, a really fascinating story told in a backdrop of a time that, you know, is obviously, like, way outside of, like, my life. Um, and the, the movies that we're going to talk about tonight, I think, are all, like, like like pretty masterful films in a lot of ways and represent a wide variety of different you know time periods in um the history of like all across the world basically um but i've always been fascinated by history i like to read um a lot of nonfiction about like historical events and um i i don't know i also think that it's it's really impressive when a director is able to conjure what feels like an authentic representation of a time period that's far removed from like the current time period. Um, and I think that all of these movies we're going to talk about do that. So. Are there certain t time periods that you're drawn to more than others? Uh, feudal Japan. Like I love a lot of movies that are set in feudal Japan, like from the, I don't know, like the Shogunate era, like Nobunaga and whatever, like, up through, like, the Meiji era. It was, like, pre-modern like era Japan. Um, I like early early 20th century America period pieces a lot. Um, especially stuff that kind of bridges the gap between, like, like the sort of, like, westward expansion and, like, the Industrial Revolution. Um... I guess maybe it's easier to say, like, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, like, World War II era period pieces. Um, maybe just because there's so many that I've seen. And I, I love, like, some movies that are set in that era, but by and large, like, it just kind of, like, bores me, I guess, really. And again, maybe just because there's so much that has been done, like, in that specific time period. Um, yeah, probably the, the Japanese is my... Although, honestly, like, there's a lot of movies that are post-World War II European films that I think are really fascinating and, um, like, really moving. And actually, one of... Well, one of the movies we're going to talk about takes place before that. But, yeah, I mean, there's there's some really good movies that take place, like, after, like, World War II, like, in Reconstruction. 
of your in terms of quality do you think these period pieces in the 70s because I'm sure you had some more on your mind other than these five when you probably chose this list but do you think period pieces of the 70s stand out more than other decades I actually if, I, if there was a larger list would these still be really high on that list I yeah guess? probably I mean there, there's stuff from the 80s and the, the, there's stuff from like a wide variety of decades that I would put in there um these are all these movies are very I, I, I think they're all very important films and they're all very important films to me so and all of them kind of rank pretty high in their respective directors you know filmography with me um at least like top five or whatever, but yeah, they would they would probably still be. I mean, if we expanded the list like a top twenty, they would definitely still be probably in the top ten. I would think. Okay, so before we get into the number five movie, I just want to do a little bit of housekeeping. We are moving to a new hosting site for the podcast uh, that will give us a lot more flexibility and range and a lot more benefits overall. Uh, we have also created a Facebook page. Uh, you can follow us, friend us on Facebook. Um, if you have any requests for specific lists you would like to hear, you can email us at twoguys5movies at gmail.com. Those are the numerals two and five, twoguys5movies at gmail.com. Um, you could also find us on Twitter um, and tweet us if you have any um, lists um, or just general feedback, which we're always looking for. So moving into the list this week, um, number five, you have Kage Musha by Akira Kurosawa, one of his later films. <clears throat> it is an 87 on Rotten Tomatoes mm -hmm. from critics. Uh, can you go ahead and explain to us what the movie's about a little bit and maybe a little bit about the kind of context of the movie? Uh, so the Kage Musha is a thief that's about to be crucified, um, that's discovered to look like exactly like the Shogun. So he's sort of rescued from crucifixion with the idea that they're going to use him as kind of like a like a surrogate to avoid the Shogun being assassinated. Um, I mean, he's, you know, a, a low life basically. Um, sort of falls out with them. Like he doesn't really meet their standards and they kind of get rid of him. Then the Shogun is like assassinated sort of. And as he's dying, he says like you have to like, hide the fact that I'm I'm dying, like, it, like no one can know that I'm dead. So they pull him back in. Um, he becomes really good at imitating the Shogun to the point where even, like, aside from the few, like, retainers that know the truth, like, his son, his grandson, people that are really close to him think that it still is, you know, the, um, the Shogun. Um, there's some internal struggle between the son and him. <clears throat> where the, the Shogun's son thinks that he should be, like, in charge of the armies. Um, he's eventually cast out, uh, but has gained, like, this respect and loyalty for, um, you know, for the people that he's fought alongside for the army and ends up, like, sacrificing his life at the end um, in the service. Like, he follows the army and they have this, like, fruitless attack against, uh, I think, like, Nobunaga's armies and they all end up dead and he ends up dying and... Um, just 
really well done, like, samurai-era period piece. Um, one of, maybe not one of my favorite Kurosawa movies, because I, I really love Akira Kurosawa, but a really well done Kurosawa movie, and honestly, the only one that fit in the parameters of this list, so I wanted to make sure that we talked about it. What, what particularly <laughs> stands out about this movie to you? I love the way it looks. Um, it's not, I mean, it's one of his few movies that are in color. It's not as visually arresting as Ron, which comes later. Um, it certainly feels like a precursor to Ron. Sure, and I think it's him like kind of learning how to use color in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and he had done a couple, a few color movies aside from that, but like really his his first foray into you know the the genre, the samurai genre, like in color. Um, it's a really kind of heartbreaking story. And it's, it's oddly, like, nationalistic in a lot of ways with the idea that, like, someone who's, like, a, a counterculture member of society, like, an outcast sort of, I mean, he's a thief. Like, he's about to be, like, killed for being, like, a petty thief, um, can find, like, this national pride in terms of, you know, like, wanting to help the shogunate and wanting to, like, still be a part of it. And um, the performance, his performance particularly is really good. Um there's some really arresting, like, visuals, especially with the suit of armor, you know, that represents, like, the Shogun, and Mm -hmm. just, I don't know, just really, like, I I love Kurosawa, I love the way that Kurosawa directs. Um, There's very few of his movies that I don't find to be, like, completely engrossing, so just some really good battle scenes in it, which I'm a sucker for, like, I like epic battle scenes a lot. Um, But really, uh, yeah. What scenes stand out most to you when you think about it? Um, the biggest scene that I always think about in that movie is at the end when he's been kind of like cast out of his role. You know, it's been revealed that he's just a, like a shadow of the, you know, their former ruler. And he's sort of been like cast off, but he's still like following the army and sort of like hiding behind rocks and like following them and trying to keep up with them. And then... There's a scene where they're sending, like, the entirety of their forces against this, uh, like, barricade. And all the opposing soldiers have um, arquebuses or, like, you know, like, old rifles or whatever. And they all just get, like, like torn down. Like, they just get decimated um, in this assault. And he, because he's so... He's, like become so in love with the idea of like being like a part of this group and he has so so much loyalty for him now like he just you know picks up his sword and charges like by himself and ends up you know getting shot and then he tries to you know retrieve the standard of um the standard is like i think it's like the elements or something in in japanese and he tries to retrieve it and he ends up dying like next to this river and it's just really um, really powerful and really well done and really kind of like heartbreaking to see because you, you sort of are rooting for this guy to be successful. Um, as a modern, well, more modern like analogy, I think of, you know, like Dave, the movie where, who's that, Kevin Klein maybe or whatever? Oh, the president movie. Becomes yeah, yeah, the president right, yeah, and then yeah, like yeah. starts to try and change things about like politics that you right. really kind of like root for him, you yeah. know. And it's the same idea, but in like a more like serious tone and Obviously, Dave doesn't get, like, you know, shot full of bullets at the end of the movie. No. Um, the scene where he's sort of, like, confronted by the armor of the former lord is, is really powerful. Um, a lot of, like, 
good use of like deep reds and dark blacks to kind of like illuminate things and I don't know it's just I, I, I love the way that I would never want to live without modern convenience let me say that but like I love the way that Japanese period piece movies look in terms of like the castles and the the wood floors and like the rice paper screens and stuff like that and it's just it's always really beautiful and like the the colorful kimonos and the whole thing is just really visually appealing to me and I'm I'm always like fascinated by that stuff. And Kurosawa does a really good job of like, you know, presenting that. And really is a master of that genre anyway. Sure. I <clears throat> Yeah, I find the the horses flopping around on the ground in that last battle sequence really effective in yeah. terms of how disturbing it is. Yeah, it's pretty horrifying. Um I think the opening scene sticks out to me a lot, too. The first ten minutes of the film where it's a very stage play-like scene with the Shogun in the center, um, and then his right hand sitting to, I guess, his left, or his right, like our left, yeah, yeah. and then the, the Kagemusha sitting there, and it's crafted very much like a stage play. And again, it seems like a precursor to Ron to me in the sense of like that kind of staging... Um, even though it's a little different and it's one of the times where it's like I think it's like the first time you realize that I, I the acting is really good in this it is like in terms of expression like I, sometimes I feel with Japanese movies that I'm missing something occasionally because it is harder for me to discern emotion at times on yeah. actors faces and um, not being Japanese so uh, but very expressive and very well acted in terms of mannerisms and uh, very subtle mannerisms too to kind of show you what the power structure is like there. Yeah. Um, there's actually, okay, so there's another scene yeah. that I just remembered where um, <clears throat> the son is unconvinced that um, there's some suspicion that this is not his father, that his father has died. And they're in the council where... <clears throat> the like the generals have told him, you know, we're going to make this argument and all you have to do is agree. And that way, like, you know, we'll just continue on. And the son sort of changes it up because he's trying to test him and like tries to he asks him a question. I can't remember what the question is. But he asks him a question that's supposed to trip him up and he pauses and reflects and he says like a mountain does not move or something like yeah. that. And it's yeah. it's the perfect answer and it's just so like, for being just a scene where it's just people talking, like, it's really exhilarating almost. So like, yeah, like, he got him. Like, yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. So, I, and, like, honestly, I, it really is kind of like an underdog story because he really, he is just, like, this, like, a, like a scumbag, basically, before he comes into this role and, like, he, you know, learns it and becomes good at it and to the point where, you know, is able to fool people that yeah, were really close I to Yeah, I find him. that very interesting. I mean, it's like the idea that responsibility leads to personal growth. Yeah. That he doesn't have much responsibility beyond himself in the beginning of that movie, and he's a thief. But being held responsible for the lives of the country and other people. Even though he's like in no way ever given any sort of real power or anything. It's sure. not like he's 
really the Lord. You know, it's just that... It's almost like he learns to have respect for the Shogun through impersonating him, and it actually makes him more responsible and more sympathetic and more... um, Yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting concept, and it's, it's, it's performed really well. And... Again, just like like I, I I love watching Kurosawa movies. Like I think that what Kurosawa, where where in terms of you watching Kurosawa movies, where does this fall probably for you roughly? Like is it the, one of the first ones you saw? Was it nah, later? Probably later probably ones? much much later. Um, I mean, I think maybe like Seven Samurai, Throne of Blood, Hidden Fortress. Those are the first ones. Um, um, Sanjuro and uh, Yojimbo. Um, Ron. Probably after all of them, I would say. Um, before, like, his other movies that are non-period, like, samurai period movies. Um, but maybe one of the last ones of those movies that I saw. That's certainly the last one I've seen, because I hadn't watched this until you put it on this list. Yeah. It's just escaped me. Um, and I liked the movie. Um, um, I thought it was good. Uh I want to pick up, although you said earlier about it being national, and the reason I asked you that question is you said earlier about it being nationalistic. I just want to pick up on that a little bit in the sense that in all those other movies, he focuses on, they're still underdogs to some degree, but they're people that are lower in society and there is not much sympathy with the government Sure. Necessarily, like in terms of mostly if, if, you, if you split right, and if or, you split it down into oppressor oppressed, this movie it seems is nationalistic in the sense that it does sympathize to me a little bit with the oppressor for the first time. I mean, I don't know if oppressor is the right, it, just the ruling body. Yeah, and it's like watching any period pieces that you have to understand the the social like mores and whatever of the times. You know what I mean? So. <clears throat> he's a guy that you know, the character himself is somebody that was operating at the fringes of society and then is all of a sudden at like the center of society and it's I don't know that there are, like anyone has ever portrayed as a villain really it's right. just the you know it was the warring states you know you had the different um I want to say clans I don't think that's the right word but the different you know clans warring against each other and um it's one of the few movies where that, like, the the body politic or whatever is, like, a bigger focus. And maybe Ron, too, since, you Ron, know, it's right. basically just, like, a retelling of King Lear. Well, it is yeah. just a retelling of yeah. King Lear. Um, but a lot of his other movies are much more personal and small. Right. Um, but I, I just find it interesting that he focuses on those outcasts and those and those are your heroes. And there's obvious villains in those movies a lot of times. Where this, it's much more sympathetic to the government and the state. Yeah, I wish I knew more about modern, like, Japanese history. Because yeah. I'd be curious if... I mean, he had been sort of... I don't want to say disgraced. But he had definitely, like, fallen out of favor. From being, like, you know, next to, like, maybe Ozu. Like, the preeminent, like, Japanese filmmaker. Yeah. For a couple decades. And doesn't it get to the point, isn't it, before this movie that he attempts to commit suicide? Oh, yeah, he's attempted suicide, yeah, he's, right. he's broke, he's despondent. This is his comeback, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and he had made a couple of movies, um, like, I think, I don't know if Dodesca, I think Dodesca Den is after this, but um, Desu or whatever that movie's called, um, that's not right, but I can't remember the name of that movie, I, I don't like it very much. Um, 
but maybe it was an attempt to approach the genre in a way that would be popular, like, in terms of the modern, like, mindset. Like, if you made a movie today that was about, like, <clears throat> like, those movies today that are about, like, American Sniper and stuff like that, that right. play upon, like, yeah. this fervent belief that, you know, nationalism is a good thing and yeah. supporting the military, I mean, not to say supporting the military isn't a good thing, but, like, that's, like, what it plays upon is people's sure. desire to do that. Yeah. And maybe that was something about that. Maybe it is the idea of, like, supporting, you know, the, the common good and whatnot. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'd be interested to, I should look into that. Yeah. Well, what would you say the weakness of this movie is if there is one? No, it's hard to call most of Kurosawa's movies are not flawless, but but pretty close. I mean, he's he's a pretty pretty masterful craftsman in that respect. It's maybe a little long, a little bit, maybe, but even that, I don't think it feels long. Yeah, I I can't. It's one of those things where I can't think of anything necessarily to cut. So maybe this is it. Maybe that my favorite Kurosawa movies are very small and personal movies. Um, like Rashomon, you know, Seven Samurai, <clears throat> um, The Lower Depths, like those are, like I love those movies and they focus on the characters, you know, like even though Seven Samurai is kind of like a, like almost an epic, it really is just about like the personalities of those seven men like coming to save this small town, you know, and maybe the fact that it's not aside from, and it's got some really good characterization and some really good performances, but it is about like, broader ideas, like, maybe that kind of makes it lower on my... I mean, I still, like, I, I still love the movie. Um, yeah. It's a movie that... One of the first Criterion Collection movies I think I ever bought was Kagengusha because I liked it so much, but still, like, the scale is much larger, and maybe that, in terms of his other films, is, like, more of a... Not even a weakness, but just, like, doesn't make it as quite as appealing to me, personally. Yeah. Um, I'm going to just turn the reviews real quick. Um, Ebert gives it four stars. Ebert raves over it. I think it was like one of his top movies of that decade. Does he consider an 80s movie or a 70s movie? Uh, I actually kind of cheated here because this movie was released in 1980, but it was filmed predominantly in the 70s, so yeah, I'm calling it a right. 70s film. I think he counted as an 80s movie. Um, Vincent Canby uh, loved it. Um, we're going to turn to two other uh, reviews here. Uh, Dave Kerr, um, uh, who we mentioned before on the podcast, he <clears throat> says, my philosophical nemesis. Yeah, he, he's he's a, he's so strange. He's weird. Like, he can he can be he right can, sometimes. Yeah, he can be right and like nail something sometimes, and then he can be completely off. Uh, his thoughts on it is. He says, though shot on one of the largest budgets in Japanese film history, it never feels like an epic. There are no sweeping movements, only clotted, jagged flurries of action grafted onto indifferently presented onto a dif- indifferently presented plot. The direction is consistently strange and often apparently wrong. Kurosawa deliberately emphasizes stiff formal moves over the emotions of his screenplay in a way that effectively cuts the film off from the audience, forcing us to adopt the director's distant cosmic perspective. I want to continue with that, as Jay Hoberman, the village voice, also says that there is 
precious little human feeling in the movie, and even Canby notes, despite his positive review, that the movie is extremely impersonal. Um, what do you say to this idea that it's I mean, it, kind you, of indis- indifferent or impersonal? You sort of echoed that sentiment a little bit, even though, like, you give this movie credit for not doing that as much, is that I think that, I, I think that Japanese culture in, I mean, this like movie takes place in, like, the 1500s, I think, mm-hmm. so very formal, very deliberate, you know, okay. and they're, like, trying to show the way that it actually was, um, which is one of the difficult things about a period piece, is that you have to remove your own, like, modern preconceptions of how, like, people interact with each other and sort of, like, look at it in a different way if you're really watching, like, a true, like, historical yeah. drama. Um, I I think it's pretty emotional at the end. Like, I think you really feel for the Kagemusha when he's, like, die, like dead in the river, you know? I, mean, I, I feel that, for him when he gets ousted. I also think that... I think that you don't show sweeping epic shots because... It's not a celebration of combat, you know? It's yeah. Kurosawa was not <clears throat> trying to glamorize the idea of these, like, conflicts. Like, he's trying to, like, bring it into the mud a little bit. Which, again, is, like, in my opinion, one of his greatest strengths as a filmmaker, like, over the course of his entire career, is that he doesn't glamorize. Um, <clears throat> it's not. It's not one of the movies where you watch it and it, makes you want to pick up a samurai or a katana or whatever and go, like, get in a sword fight. You know, it, it's very, very much about, like, it's dirty and it's bloody and it's rough and, like, it's not something that you aspire to is to go die in war. So, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I could see how people could find it to be that way, but I don't agree with that. Yeah, I, I find the criticism interesting. What's the line from King Lear? Hold on. Like flies to wanton schoolboys are we to the gods that kill us for our sport. Yeah. That's the line. I, I just wonder, because he goes on after this to start working on Ron, and I wonder if he is maybe just taking, because he is taking more of a cosmic viewpoint of it, and that kind of maybe answers the question of, too, possibly then of why it seems like maybe he's not sympathizing with the state. Maybe he's just looking at it like you're saying in a slightly, slightly grander way yeah. and looking at all elements of it as opposed and rather than fully put support behind the kind of outcast protagonist of his old movies. He's looking at it on a grander scale I mean, and sympathizing possible. with all the characters to some degree. And here's a guy that, you know, like we mentioned, you know, had attempted suicide and, right. <clears throat> was coming out of one of the lowest points of his life and is also, like, getting old. You yeah. know I mean? He's been directing for, what, like, 40 years at that point of his life or something like that? I mean, like, that's a long time yeah. to, to do that. And right. maybe it's just him becoming more, I don't know, like, interested in different things other than just the yeah. small aspects of movie making, so. Okay. <clears throat> Any other thoughts on the movie in the end? No. I think that we covered everything I think about it. Okay, so we'll move on to uh, number four on the list, which is... I always mispronounce it. Go ahead and try. Amarcord. 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 Yeah. Um, Amarcord, which is I Remember? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, in Italian. Uh, Federico Fellini, 
Uh, I do not have the year here. I forgot to put it, uh, but I think it's 1974. Yeah, I think 74 is right. And 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. So do you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and the context of it? Um, so it basically just centers around the small Italian village. Um, pre the rise of fascist, um, like Mussolini's fascist government, um, centers around a group of pubescent boys, um, and other members of the town, but like they're the central characters really, um, coming of age sort of in this time, uh, trying to understand their interests in like sexuality and, you know, moving from being like basically like assholes, sort of like precocious, you know, jerk children to maturing somewhat. Um, it's framed over the course of a year uh, from the coming of spring of one year to the coming of spring of the next year. Um, really dreamlike in a lot of ways. Um, breaks the fourth wall a lot mm-hmm. in terms of like characters directly addressing the camera regarding events in the town or things that are happening. Um, focuses on a character named Tita who's a representation of one of Fellini's childhood friends um, and just how he grows and goes through <clears throat> like some personal family trauma, including like the death of his mother um, towards the end of the film. And basically it's just has left adolescence behind as the fascists are coming in, which I think is sort of like a symbolic thing that he's no longer a child and he's just gone basically at the end of that movie. Um, really, Full disclosure, not a huge fan of Fellini. Like, I like Fellini's movies, but I would never call him one of my favorite directors. Um, but really beautifully shot. Uh, definitely one of my favorite movies of the 70s in general. 100% my favorite Fellini movie. Um, has some really... <clears throat> I don't know. Like, almost surreal scenes to it. it it's a good balance of slice of life drama with just weird and may, maybe these are things that actually happened in Italy in like the 1930s but like you know the the idiot being left on top of the like burning like pyre or whatever mm-hmm. <clears throat> the whole thing with the puffballs like floating in the giant like Nazi boat like pushing the little boats out of the way um, all the stuff with the prostitutes I don't know they're just but, but really, really well acted. Um, pretty funny at times. Um, definitely a beautiful, beautiful movie. Like, Fellini is amazing at framing shots and the way that he films, like, the Italian countryside and these, these houses and shows, like, the change of seasons in different ways and how that, like, all that stuff matters in terms of, like, how you view adolescence. And one of the movies that, like, really makes me nostalgic for my own like childhood and teenage years not that I relate to the things happening in there on like like a specific personal level but like I relate in terms of like a tone um yeah but like that's a a terrible comparison (laughs) um I also one of the things when when I watched this movie again that I was thinking is that it's it's appropriately sentimental without being precious in the sense that, like, it's got a very good sentimentality to it where you feel that Fellini is truly reminiscing in a fond way about his childhood, but not 
leaving out the things that were negative about childhood. Right. It's not rose-colored glasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it doesn't... There's other period pieces that relate to, like, you know, teens or coming of age or whatever that I feel do that. And this movie, I think... I think it just... It, it really shows you, like, life. And I think that... I don't know. I mean, maybe that's an Italian, like, thing, but it, it really and is... there's beauty in the... In everything. You right. You know, that even, you can... Even, even the things that might not be so beautiful yeah. sometimes. And definitely, like, the fact that his, you know, his, his mother dies, and that's, that's really traumatic, and... I mean, there's some really, like, sad things in there, and it is, you know, based on the rise of fascism, which is a pretty, like, sure. terrifying thing. Sure. Um... I mean, one of the one of the more disturbing stories throughout the entire movie to me is the Grandisca, mm-hmm. who is the most beautiful woman in the town, and ends up with the pot-bellied like fascist whatever. Yeah, at the he's end. like a, in the army. <laughs> you finally found your prince charming. Yeah, um, uh, it's a very sad scene at the end with her getting ready to leave with him and leave the town. Uh, well, because Tita is like obsessed with her the entire right, time. That's right, his, yeah, his ultimate sure. goal is to, right. like, I guess, just have sex with her, basically. Yeah. But like, um, and her, her doing that, her basically sacrificing her youth and beauty, basically to save the town, because that's the like what's talked about is that if right. she, if she's willing to marry this guy or like you know bed him or whatever that. They can finally what it's like dredge the canal or something yeah. like that, and like then the the boats will come back and right. <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, there there is a lot of stuff about like loss of innocence in it, and sure, absolutely. I mean, it really it, the characters all are, I guess, late middle school ish age. I mean, I would say like maybe yeah. thirteen, fourteen yeah. is the the That's average right. age of the characters in that movie. Um, but also shows like how mean like young boys can be, how thoughtless. Um, you know, I mean, they're cutting class to smoke, they're, like, mocking their fellow students, they're all, like, horny and perverted, sure. um, they're, you know, sneaking off in the middle of the night to go watch the, uh, the local guys go to dance with the prostitutes, yeah. and... You know, but then when they're confronted, and a lot of this, like, again, this is, like, sort of related to how you feel is, like, when you're that age, like, when you're confronted with, like, the actual threat of sexuality, like you don't know how to act, and you just sort of like, the, the tobacconist when yeah, she like the, pops her boob out and yeah. like it sort of smothers him, and then sure. he loses, he's like terrified, and she loses interest, and she's right. kind of like yeah. shoes him along. Um, but yeah, just a beautiful movie. Uh, yeah, uh, what what kind of things? Uh, any specific scenes stick out to you in terms of? That aspect of it, like the the beauty, yeah. I the the puffballs at the beginning is really like really well done. Um, the scene with the pyre at the beginning, uh, the burning the witch mm-hmm. of winter or whatever to bring spring about. I, I think that's what they, yeah. the idea is like that's like really a, some really absurd stuff like the motorcycle just like going through the embers for no reason yeah. and the women sweeping up the embers and then the kids like just being like jerks. Um, the scene that I remember the most in this movie, and I don't know why this is true, but I think it's just like, they go and get, um, the uncle out who's in the insane asylum and he's allowed to go out for the day and they take him out and he basically climbs up in the tree and he's like, I want a woman, I want a woman. And then he's like throwing rocks at him and they have to get like the nun to come and like get the guy out of the tree. Yeah. And the father who's 
you know, been, I, I think at that point it's in the movie. bizarre and funny and painful sequence. All but shot really like, beautifully. Like, absolutely, yeah. In that the uh-huh. tree against the sky is yeah, really beautiful. Yeah. Uh-huh. But the father, you know, who is fed castor oil because he used to be an anarchist. And I think that's happened at that point in the movie, like by the time that scene happens. So he's, and he's, he just wants the best for his son, but he's like, you know, been a working class man his whole life. And he just kind of sadly says like, well, I guess we're all a little crazy sometimes or whatever. And it's just, it's really poignant and it feels like something that probably may have happened at some point. Yeah. Even though it's done in sort of almost an absurdist way, like Mm -hmm. it still has a slice of life, like reality feel to it. Yeah. That scene's, like, stuck with me. Except for some of the fantasy scenes, I think everything has, like, a slice of life to it. Yeah, but even those, I feel like it's a good representation of what it's like to be coming into your own as, like, a person, but still without the proper perspective of what being an adult is, Mm -hmm. really. And I think that it, it, it really frames that idea well when it shows those fantasy scenes. Yeah. And it's all about, like, getting laid. I mean, that's yeah. what almost every fantasy... I'm thinking it's just for, like, the harem sequence and stuff like that. I don't know if you remember that. Like, mm-hmm. literally... Uh, that, that was one of the few things that I didn't like in the movie whatsoever. I thought it was really just out of tune with the rest of the movie. Yeah. Visually, it was the same, but in terms of the... I, I didn't understand why that needed to be there whatsoever. It's like, if I cut out five minutes out of the movie, it would be that mm-hmm. sequence. That's the guy talking about when he like the sheiks visiting him or yeah. whatever and he had sex with like 28 women in one yeah, day or whatever yeah. I mean it, 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 it compounds the theme of frustrated sexuality and maybe that it never leaves you like even as you become an adult oh it absolutely doesn't I mean look at the uncle like you know who's up there <laughs> throwing rock saying he wants a woman yeah. I mean that, it's, it's certainly there that um and, and I I think I've mentioned this I, I think there's some kind of tie in to the religious fervor that kind of comes along during that time with the church and the repressed sexuality too well yeah the, the priest church telling was, him that he can't masturbate right yeah and I, th- and I think like, that, I, don't, I think that rise of fascism <laughs> gives the church more power and I think it's making a statement on kind of sexuality Do you think that, too I mean but the church is so the, the priest is so like ineffectual I mean he doesn't care about anything but what like flowers and making sure the kids don't jerk off I and mean, that's mm-hmm. like his whole yeah the the fascist thing is particularly fascinating to me because just the way that like everyone falls into it like so easily mm-hmm. because it's just the way it's you know sold is that it's it's gonna bring prosperity back and right i mean i think that you know there's a lot of modern parallels to that today but the idea that people feel like well i'll give up some of my beliefs in order to secure my future kind of and it's it's i don't know and you see that i mean one of the things that i like about the movie is like the idea of community coming together so much which they do quite often um in that like i think that ocean liner sequence where they're all out it's beautiful mm-hmm. beautifully shot and directed sequence where they're all out like on in those boats waiting for this ocean liner to yeah. come through um uh, the SS Rex, I think, or something. Yeah, um, well shot scene. I the, the another thing that visually that stands out is the when when it snows in the town. Yeah, and they create like they dug out like these the pathways, so it's yeah. like yeah, it's like a maze almost through the town with the snow, um, which again I think is beautiful the way he does like these birds. It goes between these birds' eyes as um, shots yeah. and you know 
know, these uh, tracking shots and these point of view shots. Um, really well done. The dinner sequence near the beginning where you first get exposed to Tita's family. Yeah. Uh, I rarely do I get stunned in a scene. Like, how should I say it? There's so many moving parts in that scene in terms of character introductions, in terms of learning the relationships between the sure. characters, in terms of understanding parts of the family's background and that go into the plot, um, plus the comedy that's in it, and then actually having the physical things of dinner go on. There's so much that's happening in that scene, and few times do when I'm watching a movie do I get pulled out of it just because of me being impressed by how well somebody handles it. And it's like, it's almost masterful. It's like almost like you could watch that scene and learn 10 different things about filmmaking just by watching that scene yeah, over that's... and over. Um, masterfully done. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm not somebody who likes Fellini's big movies that much either. But this one really kind of blew me away. Like, he's really good at things like that, though. I mean, he's... Very te- technically sound about telling... Technically sound, but not to the point where you feel that his work is stuffy, ever? No, 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 no. Like, it doesn't feel, like, yeah. rigid. Like, I would always consider Fellini to be an artist and not a craftsman. You know what I mean? And I think there's... Absolutely. I think there's certain directors that are really good directors that are craftsmen and just know how to put a good movie together. Vincent Canby, I find, uses the word a lot. Talks about being rigorous. Um... I don't find him rigorous. He's not. He's it, his movies feel very loose yeah. to me. Um, maybe one of the reasons why Kurosawa can seem rigorous. Yes. Yeah. Maybe one of the reasons why I don't love Fellini as much as like maybe I should, and I, may, I should probably go back and revisit a lot of his movies because it's been a long time since I've seen some of them. Um, but he always does feel like he's got a very. I don't know, like, I don't want to say seat of his pants, because he definitely crafts, like, shots, and you can tell there's a lot of thought that goes into it, but it does feel like the movie just flows, like, you're not, you're not being pushed from scene to scene, you're just being carried along scene to scene with the flow of everything that's happening in the movie. So, not to be precise about where, maybe it, like, floats rather than flows? Sure, floats as well. Yeah, yeah. Um. To where you don't really feel like you have a firm grasp. Yeah. On the movie as a whole. Or you're just, you're discovering things. Like, it's, it's right. you know, you talk about, like, one of the my favorite things about film is that feeling of discovery. When you see a movie for the first time and maybe you see something presented in a way that you had not considered before. And I, I think Fellini, especially in this movie, is really good for that. Where he, he does things that are familiar because they touch on points of your own life, but are also visually stunning and, you know so technically proficient that it's just amazing to see. <clears throat> um, in terms of the reviews, Ebert, again, loved the movie. Um, it was one of his top ten of the 70s. Four stars. <clears throat> uh, raves about the outfitting, his use of color in the movie, you know, all of those kind of visual elements that you've kind of brought up. Um, camera work. Uh, so, yeah, big fan of that. <clears throat> Dave Kerr, on the other hand, says of the movie, a lazy but far from empty piece of fanciful recollection from Fellini about his hometown. Uneven, loosely structured, and at times pretty vulgar, 
as well as sentimental, but with some touching and lovely episodes, most memorably the village's look at an ocean liner and a wedding party. Um, so kind of like a middling review, I guess. Yeah, but you know, I agree with what he's saying. I just don't think those things are negatives. Like, where he's presenting right. it in, like, a negative way. Like, I think that... I mean, everyone's life has some vulgarity to it, right? And, like, sure. people's lives are messy. Like, it's... Yeah. You're telling a movie of, of memory, you know? And that's it's important to not... It's it's not a specific story. It's not about a specific event necessarily. It's the memories of him like as a child. So I don't know. I mean, I think that I think he's right. I just think he's a hundred percent wrong in the fact that he doesn't think that those are positives. Okay, I mean, not a lot of negatives about this movie in terms of critics. I mean, I'll be honest. Uh, there's people that think that it's uh, really uh, the reason I kept that her quote is because it's about pacing and unevenness in terms of the structure of the movie, but you kind of answered that just now. So, um, any final thoughts on the film at all? One of the, so this is a movie I saw when I was really young, um, maybe like 15 or 16 and definitely one of the movies that made me love the idea of like film is art. Maybe this is one of the earliest movies where I, really understood that movies could be something more than just like telling a story or like being titillating or whatever. Um, I've never like stopped loving this movie as I've gotten older. I, I've probably seen a Mark Horde like four or five times in my life. Um, I don't know, just my favorite Fellini movie, um, beautifully filmed, like definitely something that if you're ever on the cusp of whether or not you'll like, like a quote-unquote art house movie that this is a movie you could watch and I think will sway you, you know, that movies can be more than just, like, the Transformers franchise or whatever, so. Okay. Um, let's go ahead and move on to the third movie, which is Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon from 1975, starring Ryan O'Neill. It's an, at a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, obviously a classic movie here. Uh, did you want to go ahead and tell everybody just briefly what the story is about and some of the context behind it? So it's about Raymond Barry, um, who's a Irish, I don't know if lout is the right word, but he's um, definitely like sort of an aimless youth. Uh, I think it's like the late 1700s when it takes place. Falls in love with his cousin. His cousin's in love with a um, lieutenant or sergeant in the English army. Um, ends up thinking he's killed the sergeant in a duel and has to like flee uh, his home. Um, it's a series of misadventures over the course of, I guess, like the next 20 years of his life, roughly. I don't really know like the time frame it takes place in. Um, ends up falling in with a wealthy widow. Uh, that's where he, Barry Lyndon, um, he adopts the last name of the woman um, because she's a, he becomes a lord. Um, and then just sort of like, the crests of his life, you know, through honestly, like incredibly dumb luck on his part, really, because he doesn't do anything actively to like make his life better and sort of ruins every chance that he ever gets. Um, but just sort of like through the course of his life until he's finally like disgraced and like grievously injured in a duel and like exiled to America. Um, but really maybe the most, 
like from a like a cinematography perspective the most amazing movie on this list um Kubrick's like use of natural light is astounding uh the way that shots are lit and framed is just I mean I I know the, the production took a long time um because of with him, but yeah, like like long, issues yeah. with weather and stuff, just because sure. like he refused to use yeah. like, right. um, you know, canned lighting, whatever you want to call it. But um, pretty, I don't know how to say it. Like it's in the sense where like a Mark Hort is like a floaty movie, like where you feel like you're floating. Barry Lyndon's very deliberate. It moves. It is definitely rigorous. It moves scene to scene in a way that just is telling you <clears throat> the story of this man's life. Um, I actually really enjoy Ryan O'Neill's performance in it. I think that Ryan O'Neill is absolutely portrays this vapid idiot who doesn't recognize how good his fortune is and squanders every chance he has. Um, one of the few movies where, and we talked about this personally, like, or offline the other night, but he's not a hero at all like he's not even an anti-hero he's a cad basically and you never particularly want to see Barry Lyndon succeed but it's still to me is fascinating to watch him succeed then fail then succeed then fail and never understand like the opportunities that he has um honestly one of the most I, I I love Kubrick as a director and I think some of his movies are among my favorite movies of all time, but I think his most beautiful movie, um, the way that he films, like, nature and... I think of the robbery scene. The robbery scene, the duel scene at the beginning, um, when they're fighting the Prussian army or whatever, him riding the horse on the seaside, all the interior shots are amazing, like, when he's with the Chevalier or whatever, um, the way the rooms are lit, the way that they frame, like, these huge windows with people sitting against them and like the night sky and like the morning sky. And I don't know, just, um, just so amazing from a technical yes perspective of how Kubrick is able to, I don't know, just say so much with the way, like the color and like the washed out look of like a scene or how vibrant a scene is. And I don't know. And you go, you talk a lot about the lighting. I know that's one of, your favorite aspects of this you've, you've talked about it a lot um, yeah. but you just talked about the framing which I think is probably one of my favorite aspects of this movie which is how well he crafts each sequence in terms of how people are positioned the mise-en-scene of sure. the sequence you know the there's a scene that we did talk about uh, the other night privately where he's passed out in the whorehouse after yeah. gambling and whoring all night and all the and he's pretty much like center of the frame and it leaves the whole left side of the frame open and he's passed out at like an angle and then all these other guys are passed out on the right of him at the table behind him and his stepson comes into the frame from the foreground and ends up filling in that left left hand space, but the entire thing, and then there's the natural light coming through the window yeah. on him, and the whole thing looks like a painting. 
it, it's it's uh, it's really impressive that stuff. You know, it looks it looks something like a Hogarth painting. When you when you brought that up, um, the scene that I immediately thought of was uh, towards the midway point of the movie after he's become Barry Lyndon. Um, he's looking at paintings that he's going yeah. to buy, yeah. and it's him. You know, to the left of the frame, he's examining this giant painting. He obviously knows nothing about what he's seeing or the like. How there's he understands no value to what he's looking at except for the value that someone else has told him. But the way it's filmed is like, or the yeah, the way it's filmed, the way it's like framed and blocked, it, it really does look like a painting. Like you have the light coming in from the right, you have the people standing behind him, kind of like covering their mouths and laughing a little bit at his like naivete, and just him like standing there like sort of like center left you know so focused on this thing and so sure of what he's saying and it's just I don't know I for a movie that as the main character being absolutely not sympathetic uh, to me does a fantastic job of making you at least interested in what happens to him so I don't know right uh, I'm gonna come back to that in a second um, because not everybody feels that way. Oh, no, no. I know that people hate Neil's <laughs> performance in it. Um, Roger Ebert gives it three and a half stars and likes it a lot. Uh, and he actually doesn't mind O'Neill's performance in it whatsoever. Uh, he says that Lyndon is almost aggressive in its cool detachment. It defies us to care it forces us to remain detached about its stately elegance. Many of its developments take place off-screen. The narrator consistently tells us what's about to happen, and we long learn, long, learn long before the film ends that its hero will die poor and childless. This news doesn't much depress us because Kubrick has directed Ryan O'Neill in the title role as if he were a still life. There's another painting reference. Um, it's difficult to imagine such tumultuous events whirling around such a passive character. So, Eber definitely sees it as a very conscious choice to have O'Neill act in this way. Um, he said, yet the film has the arrogance of genius. Never mind how much it cost, how many years it was in the making. How many directors would have had Kubrick's confidence in taking this massive historical fact in fiction this ultimately inconsequential story of a young man's rise and fall and realizing it in a style that absolutely dictates our attitude towards it. We don't just see Kubrick's movie, we see it in the frame of mind he insists on, unless we're so close to the notion of directorial styles that the whole thing just seems like a beautiful extravagance. Which I think goes to the heart of the question I'm going to ask you here, is the biggest criticism of this movie from audience and some critics is that it's boring. You know, I don't... I obviously... Like, I, I think movies can be boring, 100%. Sure. But when something is so visually arresting, and it's not a boring... It's, he, he says it right. Like, yeah. I, like ultimately, inconsequential story right. about the life of one person that never particularly matters at all, right? Right. But within that context... And you know it doesn't matter in the... Yeah, yeah, they, they tell you. In the beginning. You know the entire time. Right. But within that context, he's in some pretty fascinating situations. I mean, 
He's held up by highwaymen. He's conscripted into two different armies. Mm. He follows a professional gambler around and helps him cheat to, like, win money. He's a lech. You know, he seduces this, like, rich widow. The scene where he spanks his son-in-law, like, in front of everybody at his, like, natural son's, like, piano recital or whatever it is, is horrifying and, like, really uncomfortable. And I don't know, like... I mean, if, if you're bored by, I don't think you have to have grand events occur for a movie to be entertaining. And I, I don't know. I've watched Barry Lyndon four or five, like maybe, maybe four or five times, at least like three or four. And I'm, I've never been bored watching Barry Lyndon. Like I was blown away. If you look at it as a train wreck. Of like, how is this good? Even, even if that's the case, it's fascinating. Yeah. That makes it even more interesting. Yeah. Uh, is like how is this guy going to fuck up this situation not only on the events I think like of how he just kind of moves from one thing to another in his life it's also how is he going to fuck it up sure he continuously consciously makes the absolute wrong decision at every step of his life he's always doing exactly what exactly the opposite of what he probably should do and it is kind of fascinating I mean let me ask you this, though. At the beginning of the movie, he's in love with his cousin. Mm-hmm. It's one thing, I guess, I, I just thought that maybe I haven't... Do you think Barry Lyndon, Raymond Barry, is capable... The way he's portrayed, do you think he's capable of love? No. So, well, the so way I, How do you read that, though? The way I've always taken the beginning of that movie is she's bored. Mm-hmm. And lonely... And he's interested. And he thinks that she loves him. The only thing that he cares about is other people validating his importance. Mm -hmm. Because the way that they portray his relationship with his mother is his father died and his mother just devoted everything to him. Mm -hmm. So he was the center of his mother's universe. So to him, he, he feels like he's more important than he actually is. And her, like, flirtation with him and showing him her bosom or whatever, you know, makes him feel more important. So he's not in love with her. He's in love with the idea of her being in love with him, I think. And it's, it honestly frames the rest of his entire life in terms of the movie is that not only that, but then how he deals with the idea that he can't have her, which is through violence. Yeah. That he needs to kill the guy. Right. He, um, I mean, ultimately, Everything he does is about stoking his ego just for the sake of feeling like he matters. And I I think O'Neill's performance is actually really, I'm not going to say it's brilliant, but I think it's really appropriate in the sense that there is really nothing to Raymond Barry. You know, Raymond Barry is a vapid shell of a man who only cares about the immediate sense of personal gratification or avoiding something that he thinks might be potentially difficult or whatever. Like, he doesn't want to be in an uncomfortable situation. He wants to live as slothful a life as possible because he feels that he deserves it just because of him being himself. Let me ask you this. This is the last thing I ask you about this movie. I don't think we discussed this privately. What's the point of this movie? What's what's Kubrick? If if you could try to 
Conjure Kubrick here, like, you know, who's a fascinating figure in his own right. But what what the hell is he trying to say with this? Don't you think that it's like a good, that he's just juxtaposing, again, honestly, what I feel is his most beautiful filmmaking of his entire career against what is ostensibly just a really ugly story? It's like there's nothing, nothing that enlightens you as a person by watching the narrative of Barry Lyndon. Mm-hmm. Like, it really is kind of, as opposed to being like a celebrity, like how a Marquardt has some, like, depressing or whatever, like, vulgar moments, but it's a celebration of humanity in a lot of ways. Right. It's a celebration of man. Absolutely. And Barry Lyndon, at its narrative, is the opposite of that. It's like, this is how low a person can be. This is how unimportant and inconsequential and ultimately just crass, like a man can be. But here's the most beautiful scenery you're ever going to see filmed in, like, one of the most technically complex ways it'll ever be filmed. And it really is just, like, a weird... You think it's nihilistic, then, to some degree? Like, you know, here here's the worst of humanity, but here's this kind of, like, little postmodern trick where it's like, I'm going to... Make it make it as beautiful as possible and show you the worst of the world. Maybe I mean that's it's pretty interesting. And you look at his other movies, <clears throat> like that come after this. I mean, you know, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, particularly those two. Full Metal Jacket has some incredibly beautiful imagery in it. You know, and there's some things that are like visually arresting, but it's a very dirty, sure, you know grimy movie in it at its core and the shining is the same way I mean, right, the shining we've talked is, about that recently and yeah the shining is beautiful but it's at its center i mean maybe kubrick is an nihilist maybe kubrick at, at, at the center it's a story of, a, of an alcoholic father yeah, yeah, yeah. who traumatizes his wife and son so maybe that's maybe that's and kubrick's thing is that he wants to show you that even if like the core of something is rotten that you know the what surrounds it can still be beautiful or something. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's a little too philosophical, but I mean, definitely there's all kinds of period things that Kubrick could have filmed. You know I mean? He could have set, even if he just focused in that time, you know, you, you think about Kubrick's movies and, he does, and I don't want to prolong this much longer, but it's like, you think about his movies and he doesn't have, there's not a great sense of humor in him a lot of times. Just, just strange love really. Right. Sure. I mean, even like, but I mean, I was I was reading about this movie and there's a story that um, Ryan O'Neill tells all the time at the end of the movie when he's walking away with one leg mm-hmm. that they couldn't get the shot right with special effects or like you know uh, practical effects I guess and Kubrick I guess deadpan to him he said you know what I think we have to do I think you have to cut your leg off. Hmm. Um, and completely deadpan, but obviously has a sense of humor. Yeah. So it's like, but that does, you're right. Except for Strange Love, it rarely comes through in his movies. A lot There's of some humor in Clockwork Orange, even if it's grotesque. Sure. Um, it's the darkest humor. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the it's humor comes in, black in it's right. Yeah. But you still like unnervously chuckle at that movie. Yeah. I don't know. I I mean, Kubrick is always going to fascinate me, and I don't know if I'll ever... Like, I would never pretend to speak for him, but I I definitely think that he likes to juxtapose the most absolutely, like, beautiful majesty of nature with, like, the smallest, blackest parts of man. And I think that 
I mean, I, I think that Barry Lyndon does that really well. Okay. Um, let's go ahead and move on to your number two pick. Okay. Okay, so the second movie that you have on your list is Roman Polanski's Chinatown, starring Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, John Huston. Rotten Tomatoes has it as a 98%. Uh, did you want to go ahead and talk a little bit about this movie and the context behind it? So Chinatown takes place in like late 30s, early 40s LA. Um, Nicholson plays uh, Jake Geddes, um, private investigator, former, I guess, police detective for like the LAPD or whatever. Um, basically is hired to spy on this famous, I don't know, land developer uh, to see if he's having an affair and in so doing, like, discovers this giant conspiracy basically to steal water from the farmers, like, outside of Los Angeles and divert it into L.A. so, <clears throat> like, the rich people in L.A. can, I guess, have nature and flourish. Well, and to... Uh... So the farmers sell the land. So yeah, so then they the can land. develop it. Um, it's got some murder in it. Um, really, like, classic performances from Dunaway and Nicholson. And one of my favorite, like, film performances of all time from John Huston. Yeah. Um, some pretty surprising twists the first time you see it. Including an incredibly um, depressing, I guess, ending. Like, it is not a happy ending. Um, one of Polanski's best movies, uh, maybe one of the best screenplays of all time. Like, the dialogue yeah, is Robert just... Yeah, Robert screenplay is really good. Yeah, the dialogue is just so crisp and so... There's no wasted dialogue in it. Like, everything matters. The way that scenes are both filmed and scripted, you know, lets you... It tells you a story without holding your hand and telling the story. I mean, like, you really have to pay attention to the movie, I guess, to truly, like, understand. Not that the plot's overly complex, but it is a pretty it's complex... It's intricate. It's intricate. And yeah. Most people that I know that have seen this movie, if they're not paying strict attention to it, don't quite understand what happens. True. Um, it's one of the movies that... Over the course of time, when I've, like, met people who don't really know a lot about movies, one of the first movies that I like to show people. Yeah. Um, definitely one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, for all those reasons that we just mentioned. Um, Polanski's use of time of day is pretty... It's subtle, but it's pretty amazing. Like, the way that things take place at, at dusk, at night, in yeah. early morning... Um, very little in like the harsh light of like midday, you know, a lot of it. And, and yeah. Geddes is the one time that you, f there's that harsh light of midday is one of the times where he's out at like the dried up like reservoir area yeah. and he runs into that boy and like you can just feel the heat. Yeah. Of the, but he, the ground's all cracked. Yeah. And, uh, also when he's out at the, um, the marina, when he first like yeah. confronts, right. um, not what what is what is Houston's character's name? Um, Mulray is Mul the guy that dies. Mulray, yeah, oh, shit. I can't remember. His, anyway, John John Houston's character. Yeah. 
Um, maybe, seriously, maybe one of like my top ten interactions between two actors in any movie ever when, you know, Jake Geddes is talking to um, Cross, Noah Cross. That's Noah, yeah, that's okay. um, when he's talking to Noah Cross and Cross is just so <clears throat> condescending and is almost amused that he's entertaining this lesser being. Yes. Um, and menacing at the same time. Yeah, yes. Like the like you, it's the it's the menace that comes with real power. Is, yeah, is, is is he's nothing. Yes, and you you feel that power in the way that it's scripted and the way that it's acted, and then that just builds over the course of the entire film. But um, as evidenced by like one of my favorite like small things in any movie, which is Noah Cross refusing to say Gittis's name correctly yeah, Mr. And, Gitz. and just call him Mister Gitz. Yeah. Um, even when he's corrected, he's to, he continues to call him Mr. Gitz. Oh, oh, oh my, yes, Mr. Gitz. I'm yeah. very wealthy. Yeah. Um, maybe one of the few movies that I would call perfect, I think. Like, I don't know that there's anything in that movie that I can be critical of. Yeah. Um, and honestly, just uh, a really fascinating portrayal of a time that, you know, I, I think... I think there's a lot of movies that are set during this time period, like this, like the burgeoning age of, of Hollywood, kind of, even though there's nothing really about Hollywood in this movie, necessarily, but it, it takes place, like, in that time period. Um, you know, the, the costuming is fantastic. Um, the the way that they film, like, in nature is, is amazing, and, like, the, the sets aren't, like, overly complex, you know, but they feel, like, real and they feel lived in. And it's yeah. just, you know, de- definitely a masterpiece. And <laughs> I don't normally bring up something like this this early, but given the context of what you just said about the period, um, Siskel gave us two and a half stars when mm-hmm. he reviewed it for the Tribune. Um, <clears throat> he says, the, as much as I admire the work of both Polanski and Nicholson, I find Chinatown tedious from beginning to just before the end. The majority of the problems are to be found in Polanski's direction of town's script. The opening shot of almost every scene has been so artificially overcomposed as to make one aware of Jack Nicholson wearing 30s clothes while standing in a room decorated like the 1930s room while talking to stereotypes plucked from an assortment of 1930s movies. That's weird. I don't know that I even understand that criticism. I mean, it's a period film. Like, you're supposed to feel like and he, I think he's what he's trying to say. I think is that it feels very much. It doesn't feel authentic. I think is what he's trying to say. Probably. I mean, I don't. I, maybe Gene Siskel is old enough that, that, that he's aware. That he remembers of that he's aware of that he's watching a period piece. He's too aware of it. I think is what he's trying. To I don't say. know about. I mean, Polanski's a very stylized director, and definitely is a master of like crafting a shot. Like, you know that a lot of thought and work went into making that shot as perfect as it can be with Polanski. Yes. Especially in this movie. Um, I don't feel that it's slow up to the end. I don't feel that it... Like, the character of, of Jake Geddes is pretty tragic. And he hides behind almost like a veneer of aloofness but you know that he cares. I mean, like, the more he mm-hmm. discovers about this conspiracy, you know, and 
what's happening, the more he's drawn back into this idea that he can actually like change something or do something good. And the ultimate maybe like anti-moral of this movie is that you can't like some things are just what they are. You know I mean? Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Right. right. Which has become a, well, we can call them memes at that point, but it's, 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 it's a meme. Yeah. I mean, at this point is the idea that, you know, it's been referenced or mocked, you know, like so many times of it's the ultimate statement of futility. Like, sure. And then, then maybe there's some like power just breeds, I don't know, like, a lack of accountability. Like, yeah. you never are going to hold the most powerful people accountable for even the most terrible actions. And I don't know if I want to, like... I'm, I'm always... With this movie particularly, and, like, I know that we don't really care about spoilers because we kind of are just talking about the movies in general, but I, I'm almost, like, hesitant to spoil... Yeah, because if you don't... Right. The twist of the movie. It, yeah, right. Because, yeah, like, going into it fresh without knowing what's happening... It's pretty, pretty weighty stuff, like, at the end of that movie. Like, it really hits you sure. hard. So, I don't know. I mean, it's, um, two and a half stars is really curious. I told you about a, a female friend of ours that had a really bad reaction to this, right? I told you that before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, a really bad reaction to, to the end of this movie. Um which is what you're referencing about spoilers. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think it, I think it's really impactful the first time sure. you see it. I mean... And it's... It's really difficult to talk about Polanski anymore without, like, talking about Polanski, you know? I mean, and you, you, you've said it, that you can separate, like, the artist from the work. And I, I fully agree with that. But sometimes in Polanski's movies, like, you kind of do feel, like, a little bit of... Like, maybe he's revealing a little bit too much or something? I don't know. Like, maybe. I mean, I don't... I see I, that here less than other places, maybe. Sure, like, maybe Repulsion, it's more sure. apparent. Or even, like, The Tenant or something. Yeah. Rosemary's Baby. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, I I could talk to you forever. He's about... somebody who, obviously, I think is influenced in his life. And you can see it in the choices he makes and what movies he does. Sure. Um, and especially in his early films, like, you can see where he came from. I, th- I believe that Polanski was, is Polish, I think. He's Polish, yeah. And was, a like, maybe a wartime immigrant to the United States? Um, that post, post-World War Two. Post-World War Two, yeah. Because he was making Polish shorts in the... Like, yeah, that's 50s. true, like, Three Men in a Wardrobe. And yeah. I think even Knife and Water was filmed. Yeah, it's all late 50s. Um, but... I don't know. Like, just talking about Chinatown in general, there's so many scenes that, to me, I personally feel are iconic scenes. Um, Specifically, uh, the scene that you referenced out out at the dried-up reservoir. Um, The scene where he's at the reservoir, or at the aqueduct, and the water just comes pouring out when he realizes that the water's being diverted from somewhere. Um, the scene at the nursing home where he's approached by the two thugs, one of which is Roman Polanski, the, right. hey there, kitty cat, and yeah. it gets his nose cut. Yeah, they, they, they're a really iconic image of, like, Giddis with that Yeah, with the bandage all over his face. Yeah. Um, him finding the glasses in the, uh, the fountain. Um, there's just... Yeah. And there's, and there's so many little things that stand out in that movie. Like, the way that he establishes get us in that movie 
in terms of him telling like an inappropriate joke. I think is the first time you see him about a Chinaman. I yeah, think is the joke. he's telling it as um, Evelyn Mulray is in his office, like waiting to talk to him, right? Right. Yes. But it's not really Evelyn Mulray. Right, it's yeah, uh, Ida Sessions. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an actress that was hired to play Evelyn Mulray. Um, but, um, yeah, and then it's like she overhears and she's a client. And so you get this guy who, like, doesn't take things too seriously, it seems. But like you said, throughout the course of the movie, he starts to take things more seriously. But he's no dummy either. That that scene early on... When he puts, he carries around all those um, the pocket watches, pocket watches. Yeah, and he puts and it under the puts tire. It under the tire so he can know <clears> what time <throat> that the car leaves by running over it. Yeah, I remember being so just blown away by like the ingenuity of that, right. and I guess it's probably something that actually happens. I'm but... sure it was, yeah. But it's like the, like that little thing. It shows he's not a dummy. It shows though that he has this veneer. Yeah, much, much like hard-boiled detectives of, sure. you know, the 40s and stuff, that he doesn't care, that he's, you know, emotionless, that it's all about the paycheck, and largely what he's doing is about the paycheck. He's trying to find people fucking around on each other. I yeah. Mean, but throughout the course of the movie, you see him, like, start to become more obsessed and, like, you know, more dedicated in terms of figuring this out. Um, but I always find that the most interesting thing is that he's done this before, and you referenced it earlier, when there's a certain word you use, like, again, or something like that, and it's like, you find out that this guy's somehow been through something like this before. Sure. Um, and it's like, I think there's a lot of truthfulness to that, especially in terms of, like, noir lore. Because um, the thing I always talk about all the time is the Maltese Falcon sure. story, the Flitcraft parable about, you know, how you just, you know, human nature is just end up doing the same damn thing that, you you know, you've always done. And it's like he forgot for a while. It's almost like he, he, he knew the lesson. And then it's like he got involved in this and it's like forgot it and had to learn it all over again. Well, the interesting thing is in a lot of ways it's, it's a pretty, pretty perfect, I don't know if send up is the right word, but it definitely like flips the the preconceived notions of what a hard-boiled detective in a noir film is and what the end result of it is. I mean, like, because he's not successful in this movie and no. he really is trying to do the right thing and he can't be the white knight. Like, he can't be the hero right. because in the end it doesn't matter. And he plays that character a lot like what you would expect, like Philip Marlowe or Sam Spade, yeah. just in terms of his his delivery and his ability to kind of, like, be almost like a, like a huckster and a scoundrel, but also the background in, like, police procedural work where he knows, yeah. like, how to work a case. Mm. And at every turn, even though he his natural, like, instincts and intelligence overcome, like, a lot of things, he still is just defeated by the fact that people aren't going to go against, you know, the supreme power of, like, the richest man in... Yeah. <clears throat> in the valley and I don't know it, th there's not enough great things that can be said about town script yeah um maybe and I mean, first and Giddis is a hell of a lot more complex of a character than I think a lot of people give him sure for. definitely yeah I mean just like what we just talked right, about right yeah and that's just like the tip of the iceberg I think when you really start getting to talking about what and putting in the context of noir itself yeah um Ebert said something that I thought was 
really good. Um, he said that Polanski is uh, Polanski is so sensitive to the ways in which 1930s movies in this genre were made that we're almost watching a critical essay. Godard once said that the only way to review a movie is to make another movie, and maybe that's what Polanski has done here. He's made a perceptive, loving comment on the kind of movie and a time in the nation's history that are both long past. Chinatown almost is almost a lesson in how to experience this kind of movie. You know, it's interesting that both of them talk about that, in that I have honestly never... Maybe I don't watch movies critically enough. Like, maybe I just... <clears throat> I mean, I definitely watch movies just to enjoy a movie. I mean, I'm not picking apart a film as... If if I'm sitting there, like, picking apart aspects of a film when I'm watching it, it's probably not that good of a film. So, when a film is great, or at least aspires to greatness, it's a lot easier for me to allow myself to be immersed in it. And, like, I understand, I guess, the homage to <clears throat> 30s and 40s noir... And you definitely see, like, elements of, I don't know. Well, I mean, all the, ba- all, the, yeah, all the basics. Right? <coughs> Laura, maybe, like, you see, like, parts of that yeah. in it. You take a bare-bones film, like, noir movie, and those elements are all there. The cynical, like, you know, wisecracking detective yeah. who really has kind of heart of gold underneath. Um, Even the trope that he's an ex-cop. Sure. That fell out of favor with the police force, right, but yeah. still so has some defenders. The powerful member of some syndicate, whether it's a government official, yeah. whether it's a mobster, you know, you have High that, society you have, in this case. You have the damaged, you know, femme fatale character. So, and not enough good things, I don't think, can be said about Dunaway's performance in it because she's um, she's pretty pretty heartbreaking in that in the movie, and you really do like want her to to come out of it okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, you do. I mean, in very... No, it's a good performance. It's very... What's the word? You can see the anxiety under her at all times. Sure. Yeah, always anxious. Yeah. Never... Even when she's stone-faced, she's always that. You can see You can see the anxiety. Always, like, like at risk of, like, fleeing, it feels like, or... Yeah, it's like fight or flight's constantly yeah. there. Like yeah. a very tenuous, like, connection to any scene that she's in because she's just knows that it's going to end badly and she's mm-hmm. got to just save herself in a lot of ways or yeah, very fatalistic save her daughter I guess yeah um yeah I don't know uh, it's one of the movies where like I really think that anyone that has any care about film should watch yes Chinatown right yeah. and I maybe my favorite film of the 70s I don't know like that's a pretty pretty big statement but definitely up among it um i think that nicholson is like the preeminent actor of the 70s yeah um and this is his best performance out of what do you count in there you count this last detail yeah five easy pieces five easy pieces yeah. um yeah, I mean, cuckoo's nest cuckoo's uh, nest yeah i mean those are like the passenger shit yeah is really good yeah. um yeah i'm sure there's other stuff that i'm not even thinking about but um just before he became a caricature of himself sure. in the 1990s. Right. Like, Nicholson really... And he's just Jack Nicholson in every movie he's in, but the nuance of <laughs> who he's playing, it's just... Yeah. The nuance got lost over the years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because, again, he just sees... The difference because, between... Because, I mean, you can see sometimes where he... I think he just stopped caring, 
honestly. I think it was Batman. Yeah, I, maybe. Such it's a like, caricature in Batman that then it yeah. just... Because you can see in The Departed where he's trying to do different stuff Yeah, with that character. The Departed also is a lot weightier of a movie than he had been in. I mean, he's sure. been like... Fucking it's not The Witches of Eastwick. Wolf, yeah, and The Witches yeah. of Eastwick, and yeah. um, as good as it gets, and, you know. Right, yeah. In all those movies, he's just a character. He's, yeah. just, he's just Jack Nicholson. Um, the fucking Wolf. Wolf is such a bad movie. Wolf's a really bad movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, I should watch Wolf again. Really? <laughs> I, I mean, I haven't seen Wolf in like 20-some years. Maybe it's better than I remember. I I saw... Um, I think it all the I saw Seinfeld the other day. Do you remember the Seinfeld episode where they like make fun of Wolf? Like where like Jerry's like got... I don't know. I think it's like fleas or bed bugs or something. And like he's on a bus and like he like... The full moon's out and he's like... Has like a five o'clock shadow and he's itching himself because of the bugs. And like he... Tears runs off the bus and tears off all his clothes in the slow mo like and it's like what a damn reference to like date yourself like yeah. and what an odd movie to like make fun of like I don't remember Wolf being that popular. I think a lot of people made fun of it at the time. Yeah, was it that popular? I I, I remember being pretty interested in seeing. Did it break it. a million? Do you remember? Oh, I have no idea. Huh. Or I mean, a hundred million. Um, no, n- nothing broke a hundred million back then. Et. Yeah. No, 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 Wolf was like ninety four, man. Like Nothing was making a hundred million dollars in nineteen ninety five. Pulp Fiction broke a broke a hundred million after like like twenty six weeks in release. Yeah, yeah, that's a long time. Wolf sure. was in theaters for like ten minutes. <laughs> like, I can't make no hundred million dollars. Get out of here. <laughs> okay, you give. I'm gonna look up Wolf while you give your finishing comments on this movie. Um, again, like I really feel that. I I feel that there's. I, I'm not going to give a number, but there's a number of movies that are just essential films. And I think that Chinatown is 100% like an essential film. And I, there's things that I love in in movies that I know, like I can recognize why other people wouldn't like it. But I mean, I, I think by and large, I think most people who watch Chinatown will take something positive away from the experience and will at least enjoy themselves over the course of, you know, the entire movie. Um, I don't know. Nothing bad to say about Chinatown. Like one of my absolute favorite films of all time. Speak on domestic on Wolf. My guess, whatever. How much did it make? Five million dollars. Sixty-five million. Sixty-five million. Sixty-five million. Domestic. So see, then it was popular enough for Seinfeld to. Yeah, I guess you're. I remember the litmus test used to always be a hundred million dollars. Like anything that made a hundred million, like that was. It made one hundred thirty-one worldwide. Astounding at the time. Seventeen. I just remember the commercial million. of him 18 like eighteen million in its opening weekend. I remember the commercial of him like bounding across um I don't know if it's like Central Park or something. Oh my god, that's the scene I think they're mocking. Yeah, probably. Yeah. What was that? There's another terrible movie where um. Daniel Morricone did the score for that. Daniel <clears throat> Morricone did a score for fucking Clorox commercial if you pay him. Um, what was that movie with Anthony Hopkins and Cuba Gooding Jr. Where Anthony Hopkins is a psychiatrist that has devolved into like, like a primal, like he's a primate. Like there's this, they're in a gym in the trailer and he jumps off of like a bleacher, like a silverback ape. Like Instinct? In, yeah. And he's like hooting. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's, that's a spiritual successor to Wolf. What do you think Instinct's Rotten Tomato score is? 
Fourteen percent. You went too low. It's twenty-seven percent. Well, I don't know who would like it. Um, I never saw it. In all fairness, the instinct. Yeah. Now I really want to watch that movie too. This is this is how I get sucked into watching so many movies, because I think like, oh man, that movie was terrible. That's unfortunate. That's <clears throat> whatever. Okay, let's move on to can't, you. You can't appreciate diamonds unless you recognize that shit. <laughs> let's move on to your number one movie. Your number one movie is Warner Herzog's The Gary Wrath of God, starring Klaus Kinski, also yep. at a ninety-eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes from critics. Um, you want to go ahead and tell us? A so bit about the, this movie? it was difficult when I was thinking of this list to sort of place this or Chinatown as number one because I love them both, but I think they're wildly different approaches to filmmaking. Um, so Aguirre is the story of uh, Klaus Kinsey plays Aguirre, who's a lieutenant or something in um. Oh, man, is it like Vas da Gama's exploration? Vas da Gama. Yeah, yeah it's something like that. One of those like Spanish okay. um, conquistadors. Uh, so they're in. Where is it? I can't remember. It, 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 Vase de Vaca? Yeah, it might be. That's, it might it's be. Vaca, yeah. Um, so anyway, so they're in um, Peru or whatever. They're in some South American country. And Aguirre basically leads uh, like a coup against the noble that's been put in charge of this expedition um, because they're trying to find the city of gold, like the lost city of gold, and leads this group of men, women, um, like indigenous slaves that they've taken uh, down the river because they think that if they go down the river, they're going to find the city. And over the course of their adventure, you know, they're assaulted by you know, like, more aggressive, like, tribes. Um, there's a lot of death. Uh, they all kind of go crazy. Um, everybody basically dies, and Aguirre is left, like, insane and floating on this raft in the middle of uh, the Amazon. Um, Herzog was is pretty infamous for... If he's going to film it, it's basically going to happen. I mean, he's not using, like, practical effects in the traditional sense. He's practically doing everything that exists. So, they built rafts. They made people float down the river on rafts. They is kept this, them. Is this a second movie? Uh, I think it might be. A I don't know. Second feature length, I think. Maybe. maybe. I don't know if um, even Dwarf started small. I, I'm pretty sure that's before this. Yeah. Don't know what else. I know I've heard Fitzcarraldo was definitely after this. Yeah, I, I know I've heard Herzog say that this is the moment that he like knew he was director. Was filming, he, filming this? There's some amazing. Or that he could be a director. Direction in this movie, and I think it's more that he. It feels like he doesn't know what he's not allowed to do, so he's just going to do whatever he wants. I mean, when they're filming, you know the. Like, the procession, the whole, like, group walking down the mountains in the Andes. And you can tell that the camera's just, like... The cameraman's got to be, like, balanced on the edge of, like, a mountain, basically, filming this movie. And, you know, they're in the... Well, he made actors, like, climb <laughs> up mountains. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, for Fitzgerald, they, like, yeah. literally moved an entire... Yeah, right, yeah. You know, like, over, the, over a mountain. He's insane. Yeah. Um... 
But it comes through because, like, the movie just feels so, like, raw and real the entire time you're watching it. Sure. Even, like, the more dreamy, surreal portions of the movie, you know, because they're at one point towards the end when they're all, like, dying and poisoned and feverish and, you know, they're... It's kind of like it's got this dreamlike quality to it, but... You know, the jungle is just, like, lush, and it's around them all the time, and you feel the weight of the humidity. You know, I mean, they're there wearing, like, full armor the whole time, and they're dirty, and they're sweaty, and... I mean, a lot of... So, you asked me in the beginning, like, what do I like about period pieces? I I told you, like, it's easier for me to tell you what I don't like. And one of the things I don't like is when people are too pretty for the time period they're in. You know, I mean, like, you read about the living conditions of you know, our, our past and people were not like practicing good hygiene or taking care of themselves. And even the people that are supposed to be attractive in a gear, look dirty and look sweaty and look abused and look like they're really living this terrible, like doomed voyage into the middle of the jungle that ultimately ends in like the death of everyone. Um, I don't know. Kinski is, insane yeah but he's a force of nature though like one of the most intense performances in any movie i've ever seen Mm -hmm. um his i mean he just like you just look at klaus kinski and he looks like he's gonna murder you but the way he bugs out his eyes the faces he makes the snarls just how like like his singular focus of wanting to like, secede from the Spanish Empire and rule, like, the city, and he's promoting people like, governor and stuff, like, while they're on these dilapidated rafts, like, um, I don't know, I mean, there's, there's some pivotal scenes in the movie, and there's a lot of, like, it's, it's an intense movie from start to finish, I don't even think it's that long, right, like, 90-some minutes, maybe, or something? Yeah, I think so, Um, but it's intense from start to finish, and there's, like, the scene where, one of their groups, because they initially build several rafts, and one of the groups gets killed by, um, you know, like, Aboriginal people with, like, blowguns or arrows or something, and they're dead. <clears throat> and everybody's a Catholic, so they want to bury the dead because that's the right thing to do. And Aguirre basically blows up their raft with a cannon so that no one even thinks about burying them. And it's like, oh, well, I guess we just got to move on now then. <clears throat> you know, I mean, he he stages a coup and, like, deposes this guy that's, this noble that's in charge of the thing. It's, um, I don't know, like, the performances are all really intense. You can tell that people were not happy about being there. Um, there's a lot of, like, anecdotal stories about the filming of it that are, you know, the point where, like, Herzog and Kinski almost killed each other, like, literally, because, like, they hated each other so much. Yeah, um, the apocryphal story is that... Kinsey tried to quit, and Herzog, Herzog pulled, pulled a, a gun, gun on him. Herzog, but Herzog claims that he didn't pull a gun on him. He just told him, I'll shoot you. And Kinsky knew by the look in his eyes that he would have done it. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know which one's better. But Either way, like... <laughs> I mean, that's it's, it's a good story regardless. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite, like, really funny stories is that so there's a scene towards the end where these, um, like, capuchin monkeys are all over the raft. Just, like, yeah. a swarm of these monkeys. Beautiful scene. Yeah, it's it, it's amazing. And it's... Yeah. It, it feels almost... That scene today would be done with CGI. Because there's almost no way 
that you could get it to happen so perfectly. Because they, it's a wave of them just like swarming over this raft. And Kinski's, it's almost like accepting them as his new, like, you know, people. Like, this is his new kingdom as these monkeys. And so supposedly, um, they stole these monkeys from poachers that were about to send them to America under the pretense that the monkeys had to be, like, given shots before they could get out of the country. So they stole them and then used them, and then he just let them all go into the into the jungle. And one of the things that I love about film from this period, and, you know, again, like, to go back to why I love the 70s so much, is that there really is this feeling when you watch movies that these guys were really breaking new ground. Like, there was a lot of guys that had were not in the studio system. They were not classically trained directors. I mean, I love, um, I don't know, like Carol Reed. Like, I think Carol Reed is an amazing director, but Carol Reed is 100% a guy that's directing movies that a studio wants him to direct. Even though he's doing it in a way that's, like, brilliant, you know, and he's an amazing filmmaker, he's a studio director. Howard Hawks is a studio director. Um, Like, Herzog and Polanski and Kubrick felt like I hate the term Mavericks because I think that, like, the 2008 election ruined the term Maverick for the rest of my life. I mean, I can't just think about James Garner anymore when I say the word Maverick. But, um, like, they felt like they were taking, like, real risks and doing things. It, It feels like compulsive filmmaking, if that makes any sense. Like, these are people who felt like they had no other option but to make movies because it was inside them and they had to, like, get these ideas out. And... All the people on this list, and I, I know that Kurosawa in a lot of ways is like maybe the most traditional director, like definitely the most like classic director. Um, but like Fellini was a risk taker, and Polanski's a risk taker, and Herzog is just a hundred percent insane. But that insanity leads to some of the most like brilliant and astounding like imagery that you'll ever see in a movie like and the fact that they were just on location like this isn't you know it's not a set on like the warner backlot like these fucking crazy assholes are in the middle of the goddamn amazon with snakes and poisonous bugs and it's crazy like legitimate like indigenous tribes that might want to kill them like that would never be you couldn't find out today no I, i mean it wouldn't be the same right and there's another director that you and I kind of disagree on that I love is um like like Jodorowsky, uh-huh. and he like you read things about him and it's the same way where he was he had no idea what he was doing. Sure, he's just a guy that felt like he had to make movies and he's there like doesn't even know if he's going to get like arrested for filming where he's filming. And Herzog, you're right like, though. The '70s are filled with people. Like yeah, that. and like people like John Waters. Like, sure, Waters is a great yeah. example. Lynch started in the '70s and Lynch mm-hmm. like his early movies feel the same way and it's just. I don't know. It's just so, like, there's such a sense of adventure to watching the movies where you feel like, I haven't seen this a hundred times. Even though, like, those movies are so influential to what comes after them. It doesn't, it feels like a new experience. And, like, out of all these movies, and really out of maybe all the movies in the 70s, like, Aguirre is... I'll be honest, I'd say the same thing, even though I don't think a lot of people would include them. I would say Coppola's the same way. Well, with the, the, the Apocalypse God, Now. I said the Godfather movies, too. Yeah, that's when, true. When the hell... Now it's a... Now, 
short now in 2018, it's like after you have a postmodernist, you know, series like The Sopranos, who's, yeah. you know, kind of in some ways making fun of all of that or like trying to like reveal something deeper there. Making like, fun of it in a reverential way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, but certainly trying to pull back the layers of like sure. what really goes on there. I mean, what the, what kind of mob, you didn't have mobster shit like that before Coppola came along and yeah, it was, you um, know, adapted Puzo's work. I mean, what is that movie? White Lightning or whatever? The White Heat? White Heat, yeah. yeah. What is White Lightning? Um, Moonshine maybe or something? Yeah. Uh, maybe I shouldn't be such a drunk. Um, <laughs> no, I. but it just... I don't know. It, it feels like, like a fever dream or something. Like I, I hate that term, but it's like... I think the other thing too, besides... Uh, like the, As the intensity, besides the setting, is how he chooses to film it. Which is pretty much like a documentary. Yeah. It feels real. But well, I mean, again, it feels real because it is real. Because because they're actually doing it. But it's like, shit. he lets the sun, like, he doesn't try to, like, like, the sun flares, like, on, like, the lens. Yeah. They're just there. You know, when they go in at one point and, like, um, it's like, but they, they find some area where a bunch of people have been killed. They go to the village that's been yeah, the village, raided yeah, by it's the, been raided, yeah. and the tribe like, that's actually, like, trying to kill And they them. start fighting with each other, like, internally, right? Like, when they're there? Well, because they realize at that point that there's cannibals, because they find, like, human skulls and But it's all handheld. Yeah. Like, the whole sequence. It's like, normally you would, like, you know, a lot of directors would just, like, kind of, like, set it up on a tripod and just, like, film it. And it's like, <laughs> you choose the, the handhold, like, he, he holds it by hand the entire time. And it gives it this kinetic kind of energy that you would see, like, it's shaky and, like, you know, it's following yeah. the characters and it's, like, you know, it's, um, it's astounding. It like, is. you know, you feel like you're, you, you feel like you're, yeah, it's what adds to, this has come up a couple of, a few of these movies, but it's, like, you, you're observing this in some almost, like, clinical setting. Sure. It's, it's very much like cinema verite. Yeah. But... The amazing thing about Herzog, and again, maybe it's just because he didn't know any better. <clears throat> I don't really know a whole lot about Werner Herzog's like youth or his, where he studied or what his training was, but Herzog can hold a shot for a long time and give it meaning, and in the next sequence, do something like that, and it doesn't feel disjointed. Like it feels like it. It, it makes sense in the context of the movie that he's shooting, and I'm. Very hot and cold with, with Werner Herzog's films. Like, some of his movies I love, some of his movies I'm not that big of a fan of. I have, like, always been fascinated by him because he's just so... I don't know. It's like, he's just such a character in and of himself, and the things he says just feel like... I don't know. It's, it's like, just... He's cool, like, to read about and yeah. to, like, listen to. Um, but really, I mean, definitely one of my favorite movies, like, ever. Um, one of the movies that seriously like next to Chinatown and again another reason why this was difficult that the first time I saw it I mean I remember seeing I there there's a shot of of Kinski as a gire. Um, it's used a lot on the like the video box from the 90s mm-hmm. I don't remember what the Criterion cover looks like but it's him with the conquistador hat and his hair is like all matted and like hanging down in his face and he's got dirt all over him and he's looking up, like, towards, yeah. like, the heavens. And, and in a profile, though. 
Yeah, and kind it's of, like, kind of like a rock his eyes are like so white, yeah. and everything around him so dirty, and it's just this amazing like juxtaposition of like whatever what's the word like the numinous with like the um yep. the basic or whatever like the sublime with the yeah. secular I don't know Rudolph Otto I think it is um but I don't know just like blew completely like blew me away when I watched it for the first time I hate to like use this term but maybe like life changing in the sense that like I just was so amazed with how like perfect the movie was and real the movie felt yeah. and definitely something that you know I've I've seen Aguirre half a dozen times in my life and it continuously never feels stale I never feel bored or even though I know it's coming like it still continues to surprise me and um, I don't know just a, yeah. a, a perfect no movie. I agree I, I, it's been a long time since I've seen it and watching it again like it's 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 done by a madman yeah, I yeah. mean but it's like it's it's the genius that comes with I guess that kind of insanity in some ways it's it's a really powerful film um, I find it interesting that you couldn't decide between this and Chinatown because in some ways I think the, like the lesson is the same yeah, it's like, that's probably it's, true. It's like both of them are about the futility of nature and so, like I mean, of fighting nature in some ways. If like, you ever want me to love your movie, if you have it have a like a downer of an ending, like I like I'm on board. <laughs> it's cool. Like it, it doesn't have to end happy. Yeah. Like the futility of life. I mean, maybe that says something that I'm yeah. just like. You're just a nihilist. I, but I'm not like at all. Like I'm yeah. incredibly like a positive person in terms yeah. of like my real life, but. I don't know, like, I just, I, I, I like films that subvert your expectations, and yeah. I don't know what you would ever expect going into a gear, like, if you knew right. nothing yeah. about it, right. like, what you would think, and I, I mean, so another thing that I like about all these movies, too, is that they're in, like, fascinating time periods to me that you just don't, I don't know that you read enough about it, and, like, um, you know, like, like, the, the, this, Watching this movie again, um, a couple months ago, like, thinking about, like, a list like this, so, like, it made me buy a book about conquistadors, and I started reading about, like, all the, like, terrible things that happened, and, sure. like, Aguirre was a real person, like, he really existed, sure. and this is sort of like a, like, a fantastical take on, you know, the, the events, but, I mean, it really happened, and... The same thing with, like, the, you know, the, the feudal era of Japan, like, the Shogunate era. Um, even, like, the 30s and 40s in America and, you know, pre- and post-war, like, Italy. Like, all that stuff is fascinating. And I, I love reading about it in real life. Like, I like reading historical, like, nonfiction. But I also like to see someone's interpretation, which, again, is a reason why, like, Siskel's argument, I think, kind of falls flat. Because... I want to see, like, a stylized version of things sometimes. Like, I don't know that you can ever show real life and have it be as interesting as someone's interpretation of what real life is. At least if you're watching, like, a narrative film or whatever, I don't know. So. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, it, uh, I think the thing about period pieces is if you get nothing else, you get a slice of life in that time. Yeah. And maybe it might make you go out and actually try to learn more. I think it also makes you appreciate what you got more. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. 
it's one of the reasons why, as much as it depresses the shit out of me, like, I like, I don't mind watching, like, I like, 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 watching the news and reading about things because, you know, like, I get upset, I don't know, whatever, like, for some reason, like, I don't have good cell phone service or, you know, I can't connect to a Wi-Fi or whatever, and then, like, in the Philippines, like, the whole streets are being, like, washed away by, like, this monsoon that's lasted for six months or, you know, there's, like, to use, like, the old trope, like, there's children in Africa starving that don't have potable water. And I'm upset because, like, they were out of Fiji and I had to get Deer Park, you mm-hmm. know? So, I mean, it makes you appreciate what you have a little bit. Um, but, yeah, so, my, one last thing about Aguirre is where I said that I think the Chinatown is definitely, like, a seminal movie and, like, an essential film and that anyone should watch it. I also feel that Aguirre is an essential film, but I don't know that I would recommend Aguirre to most people. Like, I... I don't know. It's one of those movies where I feel like if I know someone well enough and I think that, like, maybe they would enjoy it, that would recommend it, but I don't know that everyone would enjoy it, so... No, I can definitely see that. I, there's certain people I wouldn't recommend it to, certainly. <clears throat> okay, um... So, that's our list for the week. Um, once again, uh, if you want to follow us on Facebook, um, please rate and review on iTunes. Give us any feedback that you think is important to us. And thank you for listening. Thanks. Have a good night. Or day.